Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Dette er bra damer som akkurat nu heter bra damer i New York. Guri Solberg heter jeg, og jeg har tatt med mig podcasten min til denne fantastiske store byen. Og akkurat nu så har jeg tatt med, tatt med til et nabolag som heter Park Slope, som er sånn som du ser for deg, New York på film. Det er nydelige brownstone-hus, det er blader som blåser i vinden, og det er rolig til å være New York. Og jeg har beveget mig inn i et hus. And this is when I'm going to switch to English for the first time in this okay. podcast. Six year history. Because I'm now in the, I don't know if I'm in the living room or in the room before you get to the kitchen anyway. In, and right across the table from me is sitting the brilliant writer... <laughs> Don't start laughing yet. Sorry. <laughs> this is sort of like a talk show introduction. Right, a right, brilliant right. writer, New Yorker, and also Norwegian, Siri Hustedt. Thank you so much for having me, Siri. Well, and I'm delighted to have you. Thank you for coming. And I'm also quite honored because I heard that your mom gave you an advice a long time ago mm. to not do anything unless you really want to. <laughs> do you still right. follow that? I think about this all the time. Um, I've written about it a couple of times and in my most recent book that came out here in December, I re-examine that statement and say, of course, the pact in that statement is that my mother regarded me as an ethical human being. So what she was worried about, I think, was coercion, sexual co coercion, especially. Mm -hmm. I was a teenager. Um, but I have expanded the definition of that comment um, too many things, including interviews. Yeah. <laughs> so you're sure you really want to do this? Yeah, so this is just fine. I feel comfortable and happy to be doing it. I'm glad. And I, I've also read about you that you, you do your writing in the morning, and now we're meeting in the afternoon. So uh, how was your writing day today? It was pretty good. Mm -hmm. It wasn't uh, tremendously speedy. Yesterday, I had a day of uh, surging composition, which for me would be about three pages. Mm. So today, I revisited those three pages carefully, edited, 
and I produced possibly, yes, two more paragraphs. So the rhythm of composition can often be like that. Mm. You suddenly have this burst and then you work on the burst to make sure it's what you wanted uh, and then a slower day often follows. And for people like me that don't have any, I, have, I haven't written any books, this is like a big mystery when you talk about the burst. Can you try to explain what that feels like, the burst? Uh, yeah, I think every book is, you know, let's say this is a novel that I'm writing, um, has a particular kind of rhythm. And that rhythm is established pretty early on in the text. So where I am, which is uh, at about 130, 135 pages, I understand what the rhythm is. And if I'm quite clear about what I'm doing, you can have that kind of burst. Sometimes, however, a burst is simply an unconscious material making its appearance um, that you weren't even completely aware of. Some of that happened yesterday. It's very odd, and it's hard to talk about. In fact, it's not theorized very well, something that I... Um, also like to think about, you know, what is it? What is artistic creativity? Um, why do people do it? Uh, it's been part of human cultures for a really long time, right? Forms of representation, mm. cave I just, paintings, sorry. et cetera. Yeah, no, no, sure, yeah. yeah. And, and I just talked to uh, the Norwegian author, Maya Lunde, yeah. and she talked about never stop thing to play. She was she played a lot as a child and she felt that writing is just continuing playing. Just can you recognize any of that? Oh definitely. We'll just do you wanna we'll do, just do let wanna, it ring. So do you have a machine so we can listen to <laughs> no <laughs> listen to who's calling? No. No, I no. I think she's right and actually um, you know a psychoanalytic thinker now dead D.W. Winnicott, someone that I've been very interested in, uh, talked about play in early life, you know, children's play, but also um, playing between mother and child in the very, you know, early days mm. of, of human life before speech. And uh, he argued that play was essential to human beings and that what we think of as culture is play and it's located between self and other or between the self and you know the collective reality it's a really brilliant way of thinking about i think she's right i think writers artists of all kinds uh, are playing mm. And in order to do that, you have to, in some way, let yourself go or open up, or I don't know what expression is yes. best. I mean, there's a, a simple way to think of it is that if you aren't relaxed, you can't make art. 
I, I know that this is true after many years, and I think uh, lots of other artists of all kinds would echo yeah. that statement. You're absolutely right. And a certain openness to what's happening. I mean, it's both an internal openness and that requires taking in what's out there or, you know, accessing memory, not autobiographical memories necessarily. I mean, sometimes that can happen, but just an openness to experience, to feeling, and that then is often translated uh, into, say, literary art or painting or whatever someone is doing. But have you ever uh, had problems being that relaxed that you can write? Has it been difficult for you? And oh, I think, yes. I think, I think most writers have moments of, you know, feeling uh, tight or blocked uh, and making mistakes. I mean, before I wrote the novel, before this, I, during the pandemic, I worked only on, on nonfiction essays, but before that, I wrote a novel. And that novel was in some way the product of a dead work. A, <laughs> well, or 200 pages of a thing that just died on the vine. I, I, I don't know how to explain it, but I, and I kept tinkering with it, trying to fix it. I mean, I knew that there was something wrong with it. And one of my avenues to attempting uh, a repair ended up being actually the way into the book that I wrote, Memories of the Future, that I ended up liking and publishing. So, yes, and I, at, when I was writing that dead book, <laughs> I <clears throat> was... Uh, was a little surprised, you know, because I had been writing for so long. And I think that the failed pages were actually part of the process of, of, of writing the book that I felt succeeded. In other words, I wanted to do something and <clears throat> I didn't know how. So I, I learned by failing. And in order to kill something, kill a book like that, you have to like very much trust your own judgment. <clears throat> yes, you do. Yeah. And um, but you read it again. You know, you're also your own reader, hmm. and you acquire enough distance to say it flopped. This happens. Put it away, and there's great relief in 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 getting rid of something too. Hmm. But do you, have you always had this? I don't know the expression, but been so secure, had that trust in your own judgment, like in your own writing. <clears throat> no, I think it's grown. Although you know, when I was very young, and I was writing mostly poems at the time, and uh, I went through a phase of really not liking what I was writing. I felt, again, it was stiff, contrived, not very good. And, uh, and when I wrote something that I myself admired, I sent it out and it ended up getting published. And then I uh, 
so I suppose I've always had enough faith hmm. to make those decisions. But I also think that my confidence has grown as I've gotten older. Hmm. And you've needed that confidence. I mean, you're very brave because not only do you write novels, uh, you have uh, studied uh, psychology, neuroscience, you've walked into fields that weren't your fields in the beginning. Uh, and uh, knowing the academic world, they're not always there with open arms and saying, hey, welcome. No. Uh, how, although, how's that been? Yes, and I'm sure, listen, I, I have a tendency, of course, to know the people who read my papers and then reach out to me so they're well disposed. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, the really hostile scientists are probably not the ones that I talk to very often, right? Mm -hmm. you, you understand? Yeah, <laughs> I do understand. So, you don't mean so that, what I have felt, and also at conferences, for example, where I've been asked to speak, uh, you know, once the people you're in conversation with understand that you really have a pretty uh, secure uh, and deep knowledge of the field, they've been welcoming. Mm. But did you have to prove yourself in any way? Well, I think, you know, this speaking at conferences started with my publication of a book called The Shaking Woman or History of My Nerves. That book, except with one exception in Germany, where who knows why, um, was popular. Mostly it was not, um, you know, a runaway popular success. But with psychiatrists and people in neurologists, people in medical fields, um, it gained a kind of reputation. So when certain people were organizing conferences, et cetera, read the book, then they reached out to me to come and talk, not necessarily about the book as time went on, but, um, you know, to, to, to write a paper and, and give a lecture. So that, you know, has grown um, over time. Hmm. And do you now feel confident in every stage you're on? Well, let's put it this way. I wouldn't be comfortable if someone invited me to a physics conference, for example, even though I've read quite a bit of quite a few books about physics for lay people. Mm. Um, so I you know, that would be out of my orbit, nor would I ever be invited to such a thing. <laughs> but yes, in certain like in neurology and psychiatry, uh, you know, history of medicine, uh, philosophy, I've done philosophy and medicine lectures. No, I feel quite confident. I really have read a great deal. And I did work for four years as a volunteer, writing teacher in a psychiatric hospital, which was um, a huge learning experience. What did you learn? What did you learn? Well, I had <clears throat> by then read a lot of psychoanalysis, a lot of psychiatry uh, and psychology history of medicine, etc. But what you understand if you are teaching, in this case, psychiatric patients, and are there in the room, 
uh, with them to listen to their stories. Uh, you get a very different feeling from, say, reading the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, right, mm. of disorders that are often highly caricatured um, with lists of symptoms. <laughs> you so know, did you know that? Human beings are not, I, I knew all that. In fact, I, before I, I, you know, took, I was a volunteer, I um, <clears throat> decided that I wanted to see how I would do on the psychiatric boards in New York State, which is a test that psychiatrists have to take. And I did not take, of course, the actual boards, but you can get a sample test. You did that? Yep. Yeah, so you could have been a psychiatrist. Because no, I, no, no, I didn't take the real board. <laughs> no, I understand. What is it? I took a sample uh-huh. yeah. boards test. You know how you can, in, in the United States, there are all these tests for lawyers and for sure. various things. Right? Yeah. So they had one of those booklets mm-hmm. for the psychiatric boards. And because I had read so much, I thought, well, let's see. You know, I was very worried. I thought, what will I be able to pass the pharmacology part? Well, I did. I passed um, quite well. And later I would use this um, (laughs) in some of the lectures I gave to, you know, psychiatric audiences saying, you know, maybe you should think about this because when I took that test, I didn't have a minute of clinical experience, right? (laughs) If you can... (laughs) <laughs> if you can get through that test and actually do pretty well without ever having seen a patient, maybe they should rethink how they're structuring that. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I see what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, but then actually listening and to, to patients, uh, reading what they wrote in my class, because it was a writing class, uh, this was transformative for me. So I am really grateful for that time that I had. Mm -hmm. You know, in this podcast, I've interviewed a lot of women with different backgrounds, histories, different jobs, but somehow they all have a lot of the same experiences Mm -hmm. in the way they are met as women, different to men, like the brilliant politician who's introduced not with her achievements or, uh, or, or like her, her male opponents, but beautiful looking in the red right, dress. Right, right. Or the musician that always has to convince people she's not the background singer, but the lead guitarist, you know? Right, right. So the small stories that are not in themselves that serious or gray, you know, like shocking. And sometimes it's just tempting to, well, I'll let you pass. That's just the way he is or whatever. Uh, but when you see them all together, there's a pattern, right? Yes. So uh, my first question, obviously, is how much of these kind of experiences do you have? Oh, I have hundreds and hundreds of them. Yeah. I think, <laughs> and and I think what you were just saying, uh, which is important, is that those experiences can accumulate Mm. 
Mm. right? And in the accumulation, they can then become damaging, if you will. So in my experience, I mean, I've been told everything. I mean, it's often been in relation to my husband, another writer who, um, you know, I've been told when I published my first novel, a journalist said, well, I think your husband wrote this. Um, I've, you know, also been told that my books are like his or I've, you know, which they clearly are not. Um, I think, you know, and sometimes I would then challenge the journalist mm-hmm. and say, explain to me why you yeah. think that. I mean, just exactly so I can get a hold of this concept. And I remember one journalist said, oh, I was just being challenging. Oh. And I said, oh, okay. I thought, <laughs> I thought okay. Um, but it's what you begin to uncover and what has interested me because I think in my early days of publishing, I was mystified mm-hmm. and rather hurt. It's not that I hadn't had sexist and misogynistic experiences before, but I just didn't quite know how to compute this. And I often felt a lot of animosity, a lot of anger mm. coming out of these people. Yeah. And, and, you, and, and it's hard, I think, not to take that personally. Over the years, it became very clear to me that this wasn't actually personal in the sense that I was hated for myself, but that I was hated as a woman who assumed her own authority. See, that is the thing, that if a woman just goes along with the program, which can take the form of, you know, gee whiz, I was just really lucky, (laughs) you know, this Mm -hmm. just fell down on me and I had really nothing to do with it, gosh darn. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then I think that people get by, you know, or you smile and pretend it's not happening. Uh, I think that is the most damaging thing to do. Of course, if you come back at people, uh, it's mostly men, but not always. No, that's true. You know, it's mostly men. In my case, it has been, but, but it's not always. Then you will get blowback. You will get people who are angry and upset and how dare she and who does she think she is. Um, but in my case, I feel that's preferable. To answer back. Always. Yes. And I always do know. I I also have to say, this is just plain old advice about our culture, you know, Western culture in general, (laughs) is that you have to be calm. Calm. Yeah, Yeah. Mm. because I think it's unfair 
Uh, men don't have to be calm in the same way women do, right? Men can express anger and they're uh, seen as, you know, potent in charge uh, uh, people. Women, it's not true. So if you're very calm and unruffled, uh, <laughs> you win. Yeah. And do you manage to stay calm and unruffled in these yes, situations? Yes, I do. And I have to tell you the reason, though, is once I understood the mechanism that I stopped feeling personally assaulted. I mean, I know there's something personal about this in that way, but when I... I, I mean that you're not just sticking up for yourself. It's not as if someone says, you know, I really hate your red shoes. Mm-hmm. And you can go, well, so, you know, sorry, I guess, you know, my taste is. It's, it's that they are attacking the very idea of a woman who assumes her authority. And what is authority? Authority is legitimate power. Right? It's not just power. It's not just running around with a big club. It's taking on that place. You know what you're talking about. You've earned it. And that's what's being attacked. Mm. The hierarchy. And often, I think, the Irritation and rage, even, is unconscious. They don't know what they're really mad about. Hmm. But that's how misogyny works, right? You know, and that's why I think if a woman starts crying, in a way, then success has been had, right? The woman has been punished. Yeah. And it's very uncomfortable to start crying in those situations. Well, I've done just it. Just doesn't I'm, work. Yeah. Listen, yeah. I think we've probably all cried or no. gone back to the hotel room and cried. Or, <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh. And, in fact, there's nothing wrong with crying. I want to frame this correctly. Yeah. What I'm saying is that crying doesn't work. Yeah. Because it satisfies the person who is trying to hurt you or hurt women in general, mm-hmm. who are seen as culpable for the crime of assuming that they are equals to men. Mm-hmm. This is such good advice. I need to think about this. Stay calm. <laughs> Do you talk about, the, you talk to your daughter about these things? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, and I think uh, I have the satisfaction of feeling that she has been able to arrive at some of these thoughts earlier than I did, right? So that she, for two reasons, one, possibly because she's had the mother and father she's had, but also because the culture she's living in, the social mores, have been changing, right? That, mm-hmm. So that becomes part of the context of her reality in ways that it wasn't for me as a very young woman. Mm. And that's wonderful to think about, that something's changing for every generation. 
So we uh, hope so. so. Yeah, so you've done, you done a lot of work, you know. She's going to have to continue that work. Yeah, and also, I mean, I think we should be wary of the idea of progress. Yeah, these days, it's not really because, progress. Yeah, no, so. and in the United States now, if you look at um, what we, we don't know yet, but the draft of the abortion ruling that I just wrote about for a Spanish newspaper, uh, this is, of course, the sign of an, a growing authoritarianism. And if you look at history, you see that when the fascists take over, reproductive rights, crushing reproductive rights comes very quickly after mm. taking power. So uh, it's something, uh, you know, when the Nazis came to power in Germany in 1933, uh, very quickly, women's rights were rolled back. Mm. So uh, it's not as if we're just moving up and up and up, even though, of course, if you look at the 19th century and look at the 21st century, uh, many things have changed. A lot of underlying assumptions, however, have remained almost shockingly the same. Yeah, that's true. And do you still, when writing about this, when talking about it, when, when you saw this draft, do you still manage to stay calm or do you get angry? Well, I think anger can be a productive emotion. Sure. Um, and it can, in fact, probably few politic political movements um, would do much. Mm -hmm. um, Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Um, if there weren't some anger connected to it, um, but pure rage <laughs> is, is not going to be very helpful. So by the time when I'm writing political art- articles, they're, you know, quite... Um, rational and, you know, come mm-hmm. at the same, same time, I think they are driven by uh, imp- an important kind of anger mm-hmm. at injustice. We are now uh, in Park Slope, as I said, we're in in Brooklyn, New York, but a big part of you is also Norwegian. I asked, yes, uh, yes. I asked before this interview, would you like to do it in Norwegian or English? And I got the answer, English, please. I yeah. am so much more articulate in English. Men jeg snakker norsk, og jeg forstår norsk. Men det er familiespråk, på en måte. My vocabulary is pinched. You know, the last time I lived in Norway, I was 17 years old. And, uh, and it, you know, languages atrophy at a certain develop, developmental moment if you're not uh, speaking the language every day. Mm. And then, of course, my Balgensk is also arrested at that moment. So my accent... Someone at a party a couple of years ago, I was in Oslo, and this man came running up to me saying, keep talking, you sound just like <laughs> my, my, you know, I remember, you know, Belgian in the early 70s. <laughs> yes, because it's like a time capsule. You're like frozen the time from when you were yes. in Bergen and going to school there. Yes, and, and, yeah. and of course, you know, my, my mother was born in Mandal and moved to Ashim. My father's grandparents were immigrants, but he spoke Norwegian. Hmm. And in those Norwegian-American communities that he grew up in, they spoke a 19th century Norwegian. It too didn't move. So I got a letter at some point from a friend of my father's, who I think had met him at um, the Oslo Summer School, this American uh, uh, program, but he was Norwegian, and then he had traveled with my father, this must be still in the 50s, to some of these congregations, Norwegian-American congregations, where the church service was still in Norwegian, and the man was amazed at the time capsule of listening to these people, not just during the service, but then conversing in this, <laughs> what for him was gammeldags yeah. spok, really, mm. you know, even before his time. Right? Yeah. So uh, this, is, this is an interesting thing to have. And of course, with my uh, education that went on, you know, I got a PhD in 86, but, you know, I've continued to read. Mostly it's in English. Hmm. The science papers are in English. The 
Yeah. But still, though, yeah, still. Uh, how big part of you is is Norway being Norwegian? You, you know, it's it's really deep. I am sure it is connected to my mother most of all, who died in 2019 at 96. Mm. Um, and it's also true that I adored that. And so that language was one of the languages that we use between us, English or Norwegian. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we said we were speaking blandet, sunnet. And uh, so the Norwegian language, but also, uh, you know, being in Norway, in Bergen, in Oslo, which were the only two places I I really knew, it has a depth of resonance for me. You know, the first time I was there, I was four years old with my two and a half year old sister, Liv. I have three sisters. It's Siri, Liv, Astrid, and Ingrid. And Astrid and Ingrid were not born at that time. But I have some memories from the five months I was there with my mother who was visiting her family that she had been separated from, of course. And they are vivid and sensual. I have a very specific memory of Rue Bruce. Oh. Yeah. Is, Bergen. It has to be Bergen because that's where we were. So, and I can see it on a table. And it must have been, of course, that, that the idea of that Rue Bruce was so exciting to yes. me <laughs> as a four-year-old that it stayed as a, a sensual fragment. Hmm. Yeah. It's almost as I can feel the taste of that Röbrus, the way you describe it. Hi, how are you? Yes. Thank you for letting me into your house and stealing your so, wife. Paul, Paul is, 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 is coming back from a haircut. Got a haircut. It looks, looks good. really nice. Yeah. <laughs> it looks good. Okay, we're but, going back. Yeah, but, and also uh, your father, he was Norwegian-American, but yes. uh, he, his forefathers came from Voss. Yes. Uh, and I grew up at Voss. You did? Yes, I did. My so, family moved there when I was uh, seven. So when I told my father, you know, I'm going to interview Siri Hustvedt, and I was really <laughs> excited. And he said, yes, go Voss. <laughs> yes. But so, you know, so that is the other place. Mm-hmm. And it's most deeply marked by the fact that Hustvedt yes. is there. And now it seems that it has been saved. Yes, it's been taken care of. Yes, after a lot of back and forth and much to do, I'm really glad about it, I have to say. Mm. Um, My father was dead before this um, dispute happened. I think he thought it would be secure, but I remember when I had the final news, I was very gratified also on his behalf Mm. that that world 
uh, of 19th century Norwegians living up in the mountains and that that scrappy little farm <laughs> were somehow remembered. Uh, and he spent a lot of time looking into the past of his own family, the Hustvedt family. So, um, yeah, he would be happy. Yes, he would be. Mm -hmm. I just want to go briefly back to your uh, Röbrus memory because the feeling I got when you described that reminds me, because I've been like, my head is full of Siri Hustvedt these days, like yeah, revisiting yeah. the books I've been reading and everything. And I think that when I think about your books that I've read, I can remember where I was when I read that. I know the feeling I had when I read that. I have a specific memory of being on the subway right. reading The Blazing World. And I can almost feel it in my body. It's an, it's an emotion more than it is, it is the words or the story. It's, so it's like your childhood memories. It's sort of gets stuck in my body. Well, that's one of the most wonderful things that anyone has said to me. I'm very <laughs> grateful. Oh. And I'm, I'm grateful for this reason, that the books I have cared about I have had exactly that feeling. Yeah. You know, that I, where I was, mm -hmm. you know, what chair or traveling, exactly where I was, and the emotional response that I was having to the, to the book I was reading. Mm -hmm. And those are the books that I have carried with me. Yeah. I have admired books that... I don't have that feeling about, and usually they evaporate more quickly. So memory itself is consolidated by emotion. Mm. And so when you're having a strong response, you, you will recall where you were. So I take that as a, a high compliment. It also, of course, is telling us something about what is happening between my text and you particularly, mm. right? Because I always say a book is made between the writer and the reader and also there's the hovering cultural climate or zeitgeist that is always part of reading as well. Mm. Yes, of course. But it's bodily right? Mm -hmm. John Dewey has a beautiful thing, the American philosopher, he talks about reading poetry and how there are these, what he calls organic clicks, mm -hmm. yeah. which is those responses that we have, you know, gut responses or feelings of elation, feelings of sadness, uh, goosebumps, all of that can be had from, you know, a, a text that you're responding to. And how much of that is coming, well, it's difficult, but how much of that is coming from you? I mean, when you, when you, if either you have a slow day or a day with you, when you wrote, write a lot, are you 
how much of that uh, I mean emotion <laughs> or uh, do you do you feel that yourself? Oh yes, yeah. <clears throat> oh yes, oh yes. I'm not saying you you feel and, you the know, same think, as me, but no, still. no, no. Oh, definitely that I feel. You know, humor, sorrow, uh, discomfort, and I think again over the years I have tried to make sure I don't back away from what can be rather frightening territory. Mm. And what kind of territories are that? What frightens you? Oh, I think certain forms of you know, sinister ambiguity between people, yeah. right? You know, mm. uh, uh, murky motives, uh, sadism. Mm. Uh, but again, I think it's often trying to plummet what is not immediately clear, right? Which Things that aren't, you know, just the villain and then the wonderful, mm. you know, <laughs> heroine or whatever. It's, it's places that we often want to back away from, but can be important to explore because they really are part of human experience. Mm. You know, and there's... Um, a word in psychoanalysis called splitting, which happens in certain pathologies when, you know, it's the all good and the all bad. And you have a tendency to take those bad parts of the self and throw them into someone else, mm -hmm. right? And we see that on a political level with the us and them horrors that are going on, right? It's often the malaise or discontent and misery of perhaps a whole group of people which is then expelled into an other mm -hmm. group that takes on that unhappiness as a hated them. Yeah. So so when you write and you you bump into these situations or these uncomfortable things, uh, your instinct is to just go further into it? Yeah, I think to remain open, yeah. right? To uh, remain open to those feelings and struggle and then of course then try to articulate that and sometimes the effort of articulation is related to the fact that you don't exactly know yet right so yeah. that the struggle is to find you know the the sentence that does in fact speak to that hmm. and sometimes the act of writing is the act of understanding it. Yes. 
Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what would you be without the writing, you think? You know, I've often thought about that now, you know, because I'm I'm aging and I think, you know, dementia or all the things that can happen to a person. Uh, what would I do if this were taken away? It's clearly a necessary outlet for me. I don't, I'm not saying I couldn't learn how to live without it if I had to, but I think it would be very difficult. It really is my mode of of being, and I have a, a real urge to do it. Mm. And if, you know, for whatever reason, a couple days go by, the urge to write gets really strong again. Mm. That's a wonderful thing to have, though. I think it is. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, listen, no one's necessarily asking for this, right? But uh, it, it, it does, it must serve a really profound emotional function for me, I'm mm. sure. I remember seeing you um, at, at some kind of talk or book club thing uh, in... Uh, in uh, Upper East Side, I think, like eight years ago or something. Uh -huh. I was in, I don't, I, it's embarrassing because I don't remember what it was about. It's okay. But, I, it's but okay. what I do remember is what I, I was probably in the front row and I was thinking, oh, even her socks looks good. <laughs> <laughs> and because I, uh, I'm going to be careful here because I, I want to I talk to you uh, about your brains and your writings and not your clothes, but you seem very put together as a person. You're articulated, you're always well-dressed. <laughs> Even now, sitting in your chair. Do you have, like, moments where you, I mean, where you watch the Kardashians and walk around in the one piece? Or do you have, like, guilty pleasures? Or um, um, I, 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 I have a pair of, of um, you know, drawstring sweatpants mm -hmm. that have some bleach stains on them. <laughs> They're a heavy cotton. I probably bought them 25 years ago. <laughs> and I will never throw them away <laughs> it, un, until they fall to pieces. So yes, um, and actually early in the pandemic when no one was going anywhere I was you know washing and wearing <laughs> those and then I thought to myself oh dear <laughs> this is this is you do live with a human being after all um, and I remember I actually bought some soft clothes that weren't you know, weren't well. There's a there's a wonderful Jewish word, um, Yiddish word, shmata, which means uh, like rags. They used to talk oh, yeah. about the rag trade, shmata mm. trade. Um, that wasn't a shmata, uh, and uh, and yes, you know, I think it's interesting. I mean, Virginia Woolf said once, you know, men could talk about sports and they're not never made fun of, but if women talk about you know, the, the cut of a sleeve or, mm. and reading her 
diaries again. Uh, there, there are just some a couple of wonderful passages where Wolf, um, you know, talks about having ordered a new dress and getting it. Oh, it was a new coat. She says, and she gets it has stripes. It's, she said, but not too loud. I'm very happy with it. Oh, yeah. And another, this is not so long before she died, and I wish I could remember the exact quote, but she walks into a cafe, and there's a chic woman there with a beautiful hat. And she says something like, there's nothing like fashion to enliven the eye. Hmm. And, and it's a beautiful comment. And I think... What happens, I have written a couple of times about clothes, and every time when it's reviewed, the whatever I've said, no matter how you know philosophical or whatever, mm. it's denigrated. Oh, yeah. So, you know, then you know, you think, geez, you know, but but again, I think uh, clothes are the way. We find ourselves in the world, and you know that it is a form of self-presentation, and uh, and there's a great variety, especially for women, right? Uh, heterosexual men have mostly very dull possibilities, <laughs> and uh, women have a much greater range, and there's play in yeah. it. Mm. And I think being able to celebrate that play and self-presentation is uh, one of the pleasures of life. It shouldn't be denied. No, I totally agree. And it's uh, very uh, suitable to move on now to, uh, because I always have these three little questions that I yes. ask all my I was going to say guests, but I'm your guest today. So you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the people I interview, the women I talk to. And the first of those short questions is, how much time did you need to find out what you were going to wear this morning? Oh, that's n not too long. But I did stand in front of, in my closet, and thought about the weather. Mm-hmm. And saw these gray pants that I've had for many years, but they fit, and I've always liked them, so they came out. Mm -hmm. And then I have a gray sweater that is not as old that I also like, so I put that on. And it has short sleeves instead of long mm -hmm. to celebrate the season. Yes. Yeah. You look relaxed and... Glamorous. You're yeah, very kind. Say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the second question is, uh, what did you have for breakfast today? Oh, yeah. Well, this is kind of a Norwegian breakfast, oh. which is, you know those Vasa crackers? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, with cheese and cucumber very and Norwegian. fresh squeezed orange juice and coffee and that was it. And this is how you always start your day? Well, I always have coffee. Sometimes I have oatmeal, gröt. Mm. 
with yes. raisins yeah. <laughs> and milk. Um, and other times, you know, some, but I do like this kind of Norwegian breakfast with um, either bread or one of the knekkebrød. Mm. Well, I love something your on it. I love when you say knekkebrød. <laughs> <laughs> And the third question is, and mind you, I asked this question also to the Norwegian Prime Minister when, oh. when, when I was a woman. Well, yeah, I'm impressed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and feel kind of embarrassing. Uh, your husband, just Paul Oster, just walked by. But when was the last time you had sex? What day is it today? Uh, it's Friday. Okay. <laughs> Do you have a special day? Am I supposed to say? <laughs> I don't think I can do people answer it. Well, that's a good question. I'm going to say, not so long ago. Not so long ago. (laughs) That's good enough for me. And you know, my husband, he sometimes helps me when I need to fix the sound on on these uh, recordings. And he just listened to me when I asked that question. And Uh he said... You're you're more embarrassed than she is, he said, because I was like, okay, moving on, moving on. So uh, I can I can turn this into perhaps more of an abstraction, which is that I think erotic life is really important. Yeah, and um, that you know I can assure younger people out there that it doesn't go away. Mm. And you have more time now, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mm. Um, you know, I, I have entered that phase of my life of grown-up daughter who was also married, living not so far away in Brooklyn. And uh, my husband and I are in our late time. And it's the two of us and has been for a while and there's a freedom and pleasure Hmm. uh, in that that is different from having young children or teenage children Hmm. I'm going to finish uh, with another question because uh, this podcast is called Bra Damen right so they come in many shapes and forms and I obviously wanted to talk to you because I definitely think that you're a bra dame, right? <laughs> like so my bra. last question is, uh, what is a bra dame, a good woman? I don't know if there's a similar English expression, but uh, how would you define a really great woman? Oh, probably, uh, well, this is, this is a hard one, right? Because in a way, there are these human characteristics, right, that we value in mm-hmm. both sexes or all sexes to, yeah. to, 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 to be uh, clear. Uh, but I think that for women, it's often been more difficult to find integrity than for men, right? Because men are assumed to be autonomous beings much earlier, even if they're not. That (laughs) doesn't matter, right? But but I think that um, I admire traits of um, 
you know, women who are independent and autonomous and at the same time recognize that we, all of us, are, you know, made through others. Right? Mm. This is an important part of collective life. And, uh, you know, to value kindness, but also... Uh, the kind of honesty that makes it important to say what you mean, even when it's uncomfortable. Mm. Siri, thank you so much for talking to me. It was such a pleasure. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. You think so? Yeah. You're you glad you wonderful. said yes. Thank you. You were you're really good at it. Thank you. That means so much to me. No, but you're very good at thank it. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.